We will be in the book of Acts chapter 8 for our message. And so while you're turning there, I want to dismiss our children who are fourth grade and younger to head upstairs with our leaders for our kids crew worship time. This is a time of worship designed specifically for them. They're engaging with the truths of the Bible. They're actually studying in, in Acts as well. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 today. What's interesting about this passage of text that we're going to dig into in Acts 8 today is that uh, this, this passage itself presents a, a situation that, that really needs some, some, some explanation, some understanding. And yet, if we really come to know and understand what's happening here in Acts 8, it becomes this beautiful picture of how God is working and how he would work, not only then, certainly, but how he wants to continue working in our hearts and our lives today. As we bring all things under his authority, as we, as we submit our lives to him and we live in, in obedience to him, what's interesting is that we've seen that in Acts 1-8, Jesus, prior to his ascension, declares to his disciples, those who are gathered together. He says, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes and power will come upon you. Great power will come upon you, he says, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, or in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? So he kind of starts with Jerusalem and works his way outward in what we might think of as sort of these concentric circles or just sort of geographically. That Jerusalem was the city they were in, Judea, the surrounding area, Samaria, a little further beyond that and then even beyond that to the ends of the earth. And so that was in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, sort of the inverse, if you just flip the numbers, in 8.1, we find this is the first time that we, that we find real evidence of that to be true. And so what Jesus declared to his disciples would happen in Acts 1.8 is now happening in Acts 8.1. But what we need to recognize about this is that, that the circumstance behind this is one of great trouble. The, the circumstance behind this is one of uh, really of, of violence, really, when it comes down to it. We left off last week, we studied in Acts chapters 6 and 7, the story of Stephen and Stephen's bold witness for the Lord. But the story of Stephen closes with Stephen's brutal death in Acts chapter 7 as Stephen is stoned to death by those who did not hear what it was that he preached and proclaimed. And so they literally picked up rocks and hurled rocks at him and, and, and beat him to death, a violent, a gruesome death. And even in that, we saw that Stephen cried out, Lord, forgive them of their sin. Forgive them of what they were doing. And then in Acts 8, we see that that persecution of the church that started with Stephen, who we refer to as the first martyr of the church, that that continues now as, as the, uh, we'll say the pressure is dialed up. We see this character named Saul, who we first met again at the close of chapter 7 
mentioned again in the opening verses of chapter 8. Now, what we know to be true of Saul, and we'll look at this in a few weeks when we get into Acts chapter 9, is that Saul would become Paul. This same guy, Saul, who in Acts 7 and 8 is a scoundrel, becomes the greatest evangelist and, and perhaps the, the greatest witness for, the, for, for Jesus ever, perhaps. And so God works a, a, an amazing, a transformative, but Acts 7 and 8 are a part of the key of helping to piece together the story for us so that we see how that happens. Acts 8, in particular, the passage that we're going to look at today, sometimes is referred to amongst uh, theologians and, and, and commentators, Bible historians. They'll, they'll, sometimes they'll refer to this as the Samaritan Pentecost, the Samaritan Pentecost. And so I'm going to explain a little bit more about that as we, as we kind of work our way through the situation. But again, in Acts chapter 1, we saw that Pentecost was that moment when the Holy Spirit came in Jerusalem and the, and the flame was ignited, so to speak, and, and the church began to grow. And, and they proclaimed the gospel and thousands were converted and they began to preach Jesus as the Holy Spirit is moving in the lives of believers. And it just begins to work its way out so that what Jesus declared would happen in Acts 1-8 now is happening in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. But there's something interesting about, unique even, about what happens here in Samaria in Acts 8 that deserves our attention because we see that the, the, the Lord works in a way here that is not normal, that, that is not the, the typical pattern. He sort of breaks his, his normal pattern, and, and, and so I want to understand that, not just so that we could say, oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, look at these things that happened, but I think it's really important to help us see that God is doing something here, and, and, and so we're going to, I don't want to give it all away yet, right? You've you got to listen to the whole message to get all of it, but let's read together in Acts, and I'm going to offer a little bit of running commentary as we read Acts 8, 1 through 25. That's a lot of verses that we're going to read, but I'm going to offer just a little bit of insight and commentary as I'm reading through this, and then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 8, all right? And Saul approved of his execution. We read in Acts 8.1, his execution there, of course, is, this is just connecting the, the, with Stephen and the things that just happened in Acts 7. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Paul, who's not yet Paul, he's Saul here at this point in the story. Saul is ravaging the church. He is, he is leading the way in persecuting this, this early group of believers, which we've seen has grown now to the point that it's, it's thousands, probably uh, numbers upward of 20,000 or more at this point in Acts chapter 8. But they, they're scattered to Judea and Samaria and beyond. And as they are scattered, they go proclaiming the gospel. 
They go preaching the gospel. They are witnesses to Jesus. And so the Lord is using the persecution of the church to advance the gospel. Now that's really sort of where we left off last week, talking about how God may use even our most painful and difficult of circumstances to be a witness to Jesus. It may be Even if this is not the path you would choose to walk, it may be that God would use your greatest heartbreaks, your your deepest pains, your lowest valleys as the moment in which he would shine the light of his gospel. And that's what he's doing even here. He's using this persecution of the church to scatter the believers so that they would advance the gospel. But there's an important point here that's just given almost as, as if it's just an aside that we, that we read, the, but not the apostles, okay? So the, the people of the church scattered, but not the apostles. And that's an important point that we'll come back to. Let's keep reading verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip, if you remember Acts 6, was one of the Hellenist Jews, which is to say he was a, he was a Jew of Greek, uh, who spoke Greek, of Greek uh, nationality. So here is Philip, one of the, the Jews who has a Greek name, who is also made one of the seven deacons there in Acts chapter 6, and now Philip is preaching the gospel in Samaria. Verse 6, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Verse 9, And there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, notice something about Simon here, okay? First of all, it says that Simon practices magic. Now, what does it mean that Simon practiced magic, okay? This probably uh, doesn't mean that Simon was like doing uh, illusions. He wasn't, you know, a first century illusionist who, uh, who had a deck of cards and he's standing on the street corners and he's practicing magic and just fleecing them for their money, right? It's probably not what that means. Probably his magic is, uh, is some combination of, uh, of, of astrology, of pagan religion, even to some extent, perhaps mathematics and, 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 and their understandings of science. And, and again, I, I don't want to make science the bad guy here. Probably, though, Simon was using a little bit of knowledge about science and math and some of these things to make these predictions. And, and, and so he was all of this he was doing for his own personal gain. Simon is the one who's telling people how great he is. That's the thing I want you to see here in particular, right? We, we saw that he had practiced magic in the city and amazed people and saying 
that he himself was somebody great. So Simon plants this thought of inception of how great he must be that he can perform all of these things, and people evidently went along with it. They, they saw him, they saw the things that he was doing, and it sort of goes on to indicate in the verses that we're going to read in a moment that there was even a, a dark element of, of sorts here, maybe some demon possession. It, it doesn't state that outright, but it sort of hints at least at the idea that the, that, that some of what Simon is doing is just outright, uh, outright evil. And, and so let's keep reading. But th- that's who this Simon guy is, right? And they paid attention to him, verse 11, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they went to them, rather they sent to them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This is a part of the story that I told you where, where the Lord sort of break, breaks his normal pattern here in that they did not immediately receive the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, there are other denominations, uh, some who are uh, Pentecostal is even the, the phrase that they would use, who believe in a separate baptism of the Spirit, that you're baptized in the name of Jesus and later you receive the baptism of the Spirit. And they would use Acts chapter 8 as sort of a key text in explaining that this is the way that it works. I would, I would disagree with them, and I, and I want to show you why I, I don't think that is the case today, that what we see in Acts 8 is not the normal or the normative pattern of how the Holy Spirit works, but rather the exception that proves the rule, but also points to the great work that God is doing here in Samaria, and, and there's a reason for that. So we'll come back to all of that, okay? And so the apostles come, they lay hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit, right? This is verse 18. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. That's where I said it's hinted at here, that there's some wickedness, there's some, some evil that's going on here. Certainly Simon's reaction shows an evil or wicked heart, a perverse heart, but it, it hints perhaps that, there's, that, that all of his actions are, are the result of some kind of a, a possession or something. We don't know, but, but it's hinted at, right? Anyway, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so there's this this incredible thing that happens here in 
Acts 8, Philip is preaching the gospel, and he's proclaiming Jesus, and many people are hearing the words of Philip, and they believe, and they're even baptized. They go so far as to be baptized, and yet what becomes plain is that they've not received the Holy Spirit. Now, the disciples, the apostles who had remained in Jerusalem, you remember that we read that the apostles that the church scattered, but the apostles didn't scatter. So the apostles who remained in Jerusalem heard of what was happening in Samaria, and they sent, they sent Peter and John, which you may know because of just their prominence throughout the early, book, the early chapters here in Acts. Peter and John are effectively, they're the, the primary leaders of the early church at this point. They are the, they are, they, they are the primary. They, they were a part of the inner circle of the three who were Peter, James, and John, who were so tight with Jesus himself. And so Peter and John have this, this role of authority, this role of leadership in the church, and they hear what's happening in Samaria, and they go to determine if this is genuine or not. And what they find is that people have believed in Jesus, but they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, the question that becomes sort of obvious, how would they know? How would they know that they had believed but not received the Holy Spirit? We're left to sort of answer that ourselves, to sort of fill in the blanks. The text doesn't tell us specifically, but there was something that was apparent to Peter and John that they could tell that their faith in Jesus seemed genuine, and yet they had not received the power of the Holy Spirit, and so... Peter and John laid hands on them and prayed, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, that's where this breaks the normative pattern, because what we find to be the normative pattern is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved, and at the moment that we surrender our hearts to Jesus, we receive His Holy Spirit as a, a, a seal guaranteeing our salvation. That's what the, the New Testament teaches. I'm going to even show us several verses that point us to as much, and yet that's not what happens plainly in Acts 8. So some have offered, well, so what must have happened is that they had given lip service to Jesus, but they had not actually believed. They had not actually surrendered their hearts to him. And I would tell you, I don't think that's actually what happened. I do believe that their their faith in Jesus was sincere and was genuine, and that God chose to withhold the Holy Spirit until the apostles came. And the reason why, I think, has everything to do with helping us to understand this key truth, that the gospel is for everyone. You see, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, points us to the fact that the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for the people of Jerusalem. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everyone. And what you may know, if you know enough about sort of your, your first century history, your, your, your Jewish history, your, your Bible history, is that there was, there was, to say that there was a rift between the Jews and the Samaritans is putting it lightly, right? There were, there were generations of bad blood between Jews and Samaritans, and yet even in the, the life and the ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus at several points, including the Samaritans. Well, to understand how profound that is, you need to understand a little bit about who the Samaritans are. The Samaritans are the descendants of, the remnants of, the 
the northern tribes of Israel. And so, you go back to the Old Testament, you study a little bit of your Old Testament history, you know that after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel is divided. So, you have Saul, uh, you have Saul as the first king that, that ruled over Israel after the period of the judges, and then you have David, and David was a great, a mighty king. You have Solomon who follows, and then in, in the years following Solomon, the kingdom is divided between the southern and the northern tribes. And the northern tribes eventually were conquered by the Assyrians in the uh, 700s BC. It was ultimately in 722 that they fell finally, although that really the, their conquest began uh, many years before that. But the northern tribes fall, and as the northern tribes fall, the Assyrians carry them off, and those who remained began to intermarry with the other peoples in, their, in the surrounding territories. And, and, and so effectively, you have this new ethnicity that emerges that are known as the Samaritans. And the reason they're known as the Samaritans is because they lived in the area that was called Samaria. And the Samaritans, in the eyes of the Jews, were a mixed race and, and, and it represented, their, just their very, their very existence represented the fact that these were people who had turned their backs on God, that they had disobeyed the laws of God, they had disobeyed the commands of God, and that they had become an impure people who believed in impure religion. The Samaritans established their own temple. They established their own seat of worship. They established their own priesthood, their own hierarchy. They began to incorporate pagan worship practices into the, the Jewish faith. And so there emerges this new people and this new religion, and a great rift grows between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so it's, it's pretty profound, isn't it, when you understand that, that Jesus tells the story of a, a devout man on, on the way who is attacked and is beaten, and the religious leaders and the priests pass by him, but it's the Samaritan who stops to offer him aid. It's profound when you understand that, that Jesus would sit with a woman at a well in the middle of the day, what we learn to be a Samaritan woman, and would preach the gospel to her and would invite her to worship and even say to her that a day is coming and yet now has come when the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and he invites her to believe and repent and to receive living water so, so she would never thirst again. It's profound when we understand these things to see that, that the gospel is available even to the Samaritans, whom the Jews despised. So much so that if you, if you were a Jew and you needed to travel through Samaria, you would, you would take a day's journey out of your way to go around Samaria and avoid it altogether. And it's here in Samaria that Philip begins to preach the gospel. You can imagine, given the generations of bad blood and the animosity between them, that the initial response of the apostles would have been likely one of skepticism, would it not? The initial response would have been, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. 
And so seeing or hearing at least what was taking place in Samaria, they're so interested, so invested in knowing that this is genuinely the work of God that Peter and John themselves, who did not leave Jerusalem even even at the hands of great persecution, Peter and John decide, we need to go check this out. And so they travel north to Samaria, and, and they, they come to see that here are people who have professed faith in Jesus. They've proclaimed Jesus. Their faith seems to be genuine and severe and sincere. I should say not severe, sincere. And yet they have not received the Holy Spirit. And so they pray and they lay hands on them. And the reason why, I believe, is because the Lord wanted Peter and John to be witnesses to the fact that the Holy Spirit was for everyone so that even they would not deny that the gospel was giving birth to this missionary movement. Now we're going to see again in a few chapters, we get a little bit further, you're going to see that some of this, what I'm just going to simply call racism, persists in the heart of Peter, to the point that we find a moment where Paul even calls him on it. Paul even sort of calls him out publicly over this thing. Even, and this is even after the Lord uses Peter to preach the gospel to, to Gentiles. And so there's some, there's some, some, some lifetime, uh, some generations of uh, animosity here, and the Lord is using the circumstances to prove beyond any shadow of the doubt that the faith of the Samaritans is real and genuine, that the gospel is for everyone, that they are welcomed in as sons and daughters of Jesus. And so that's why the Lord breaks his regular pattern here of just giving the Holy Spirit. So uh, in in your notes, you're going to find that there are three points, three key things that I want us to understand about the, the work of the Holy Spirit and understanding how the Holy Spirit worked here, I think helps us to see how the work, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and our lives now. You see, because what the Holy Spirit was doing in the book of Acts, what he's doing in Acts 6, 7, 8, is, is actually the same thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts now. But it's important that we see this work of the Holy Spirit because we need to recognize that apart from the genuine work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we are lost and powerless in our sins. No matter what you might say, no matter what you might profess to be true, no matter if you've been baptized or not, unless you have received the Holy Spirit, the Bible is going to make it clear that you're not genuinely Saved, And so it was important that these believers would receive the Holy Spirit, and even the way that they did is meant to be an undeniable, an undeniable proof that the gospel is for everyone. So the first point in the notes is this. The Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee. Now we see that here, that when they received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of the apostles' hands, that there was great power that came on them. So much so that Simon instantly recognizes that now these other believers have this power and he does not. And so he kind of pulls Peter and John aside and says, guys, give me this power. Can I have this power? I'll pay you for it gladly so that that I can do these things. And Peter rebukes him and says, 
You can't buy this power. This is given by the Lord as a gift, as a guarantee of his salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read this. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word guarantee there can also be translated can also be translated as the word the, the deposit or the down payment. It's the root for what we might describe today as a, a down payment. This is the guarantee that is given to us. So the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of God's saving work in our hearts. Look at what Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the Spirit is given to us, sealing our salvation, a guarantee of God's saving work. And whoever does not have the Spirit doesn't belong to him. Let's look also at 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. This is John, the same John, by the way, who laid hands on these in Samaria and prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit, later goes on to write these very words for us, 1 John 4, 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And so the plain truth is that everyone who, everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. That was not what happened uniquely in Acts 8 in Samaria, but that's not the normal pattern. That's not That's not the way that it happens always. Rather, that was a unique circumstance that the Lord used in order to offer an undeniable proof that the gospel is going even to those that the Jews would have considered to be their enemies. The gospel is for everyone. And the gospel is given as a guarantee. A guarantee, uh, rather the spirit, I should say, is given as a guarantee. A guarantee of our salvation. Guaranteeing that we are saved. that That we are his that we have been welcomed in, forgiven, and set free through faith in Jesus. How do we know that? Because he gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, inside of us. So the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee. Secondly, we see, even in this passage in Acts 8, that the Holy Spirit binds believers together in one body. That's exactly what's happening here. The Jews are now on equal footing with the Samaritans. The Jews are now brothers and sisters through faith in Jesus with what had previously been their enemies. Why? Because of their faith in Jesus. They are bound together as one, in one body, as heirs, co-heirs together with Christ. They are bound together as one people, a royal priesthood that Peter would go on to write about later in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, a holy nation, a people of his own possession who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's the way Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And so here they are bound together. Look at what Paul would later write to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For just as 
The body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. That's Paul's way of saying that the gospel is for everyone, that the, foot, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross so that everyone who comes to Jesus will be saved and forgiven and set free, so that whether you are a Jew, a Greek, a Gentile, or someone who who was raised and steeped in in, in the understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and the faith, or someone who knew nothing of it, that if you trusted in Jesus, repented of your sins, if you confessed him as Lord and Savior, you would receive his Holy Spirit. You would be welcomed into his body. So the Holy Spirit binds us together as a body, making us one. Those of us who were once fractured and distant, even enemies, become brothers and sisters together in Christ. And this is so important for us to understand. This is so important for us to understand. You know, part of what, part of what is here but perhaps lost on us is the, even the racial, the ethnic component of what's taking place here in, in, in this passage in Acts chapter 8. Now, this is not the perfect analogy, but I'm going to use an analogy kind of taken from modern headlines. Imagine, if you will, that this is like someone who, who is an Israeli citizen today saying that they see the person from Hamas who confesses Christ to be their brother or their sister in Christ. Someone who would be their by all expectations, their enemy, but now is their brother, their sister in the faith because they have professed faith in Christ. Now, in order for that to happen, of course, there would need to be a genuine conversion, a genuine confession of faith, a genuine belief. And how do we know that that faith is genuine? It's evidenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit given to them as a guarantee of their salvation, binding them together as one body of believers, brothers and sisters together in Christ, making them one in Jesus. Now, again, that's not the perfect analogy, but you, you, begin, to get, you, begin, you begin to get what's happening, right? So that people who, who are at odds are now, are now united together in one body through faith in Jesus. And if they can do that, if the Jews and the Samaritans can get over their animosity and their hatred and their contempt for one another, I'm I'm here to tell you that we can look beyond the the, the hurts, the habits, the hangups, the ways that we've been hurt as well. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to just dismiss all the wrong and and, and the pain done to you. Listen, I I recognize that there are some things that, that others may have perpetrated against you that are criminal. I mean, literally truly criminal. And I'm not saying that they become your best friend, but what I am saying is that if they they profess faith in Jesus and surrender their heart to him and genuinely repent of their sin and convert to faith in him, that they're forgiven and set free. And now they're your brother, your sister in Christ. And that doesn't mean that they have to be your best friend, but it does mean that the gospel can change any heart The gospel can save anyone, and our prayer ought to be that it would, in fact, reach even the most hardened of hearts, that they may be transformed by the saving power of Christ. And 
this very truth is going to become even more important when we begin to see and study Paul's conversion. Because what we find in Paul is someone who was directly responsible for the deaths of many who now professes faith in Jesus and becomes a part of the church. It's the transforming power of the gospel at work. And it's so powerful, in fact, that Acts 8 is given to us, is given even to them as a proof, as a demonstration that the gospel is for everyone. The final thing we see here is the Holy Spirit's presence produces great power. There is a warning. There is a, a warning that is in, inherent, that is, that is not so directly stated, but certainly implied here in the situation. It, it is directly stated in Peter's rebuke of Simon that we see here. But we need to heed this warning as well. And the warning is simply this. You cannot buy forgiveness. You cannot. And, and I don't just mean with money, but I mean you can't earn it. You cannot earn forgiveness by doing great things, by doing good things, by being a good person, by trying harder, by going to church, by doing all the things that you think that you ought to do. The only way that we can be forgiven and set free from our sin is to turn our hearts to Jesus and receive his Holy Spirit as the presence, as the guarantee of our salvation. And when we do, this great Holy Spirit power comes on us, just as was promised in Acts 1.8. Great power will come on you. You will receive power. Look at the evidences here of the Spirit's power in the ministry of Philip, right? You go back and you see in verses 6, 7, that he was proclaiming the gospel, that, that there were these great signs. Unclean spirits were cast out. People were crying out in a loud voice. It came out of those who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There was great joy in the city. Incredible things were happening because the gospel was reaching the hearts of those who needed it the most. There's evidence here of the Holy Spirit's power. There's great power at work in the Holy Spirit, but sadly we see that Simon thought that this was something that could be earned, that could be bought. And so in verse 19, Simon says, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter rebukes him in verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter recognizes that that this Simon the magician, that his heart is not right. You know, what's interesting is that uh, later on in, in the, the, the church, there would be a phrase, there would be a turn of phrase or a, a word that was used to describe those who tried to bribe their way into some kind of religious position. Maybe you've heard of this. They call it simony. Have you ever heard of the, the term simony? Simony was a, a term that was used to describe the, the indulgences that later became a part of the priesthood. It's part of what, it's part of what Martin Luther led the, uh, 
the Reformation against. If you understand church history and you understand uh, Luther's 95 theses that he posted to the door of Wittenberg Chapel, that, that what Martin Luther was doing is he was pointing out the many ways that the church had become corrupted by the love of and the pursuit of money. And that love of money is sometimes referred to by historians as simony. And where does that come from? It comes from Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. It's evidence of the fact that some think that salvation is earned and they want to use it for their own gain. And yet Peter makes it clear here. It's so important that we understand Salvation is not something that you earn, but something you receive as a gift through genuine, sincere faith in Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit is the evidence of the sincerity of that faith. Those who turn to the Lord are given His Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a down payment, if you will, the deposit of their salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I think it's important that we understand what the, the Holy Spirit has the power. Look at the, the power of the Holy Spirit at work here. The Holy Spirit has the power to bring about repentance. And so Peter says to Simon, you need to repent of your sins and you need to pray to God and ask him to forgive you of your sins so that you might receive his Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you can receive the Holy Spirit. Sadly, we don't know if that ever happened. We don't know that Simon genuinely believed. The circumstance and even the rebuke, the way that it's left here, implies at least that he doesn't. But we don't know that for for certain. What we do know is up to this moment, Simon is not genuinely saved. Even though we read a few verses before, Simon himself believed and was baptized. You see, it's not... It's not what you say with your lips. It's not, the, it's, it's not getting dunked in the water. Those aren't the things that save you. It's when you truly surrender your heart to Jesus that you are saved. In Romans chapter 10, Paul would later write that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's both of those that's important. That we confess with our mouth, yes, but also that we believe with our heart. And it's the work of the heart that is missing here in Simon's life. It's the work of the heart that is so important because unless our hearts are truly surrendered to the Lord, we will not receive his Holy Spirit and we are not genuinely saved. The Holy Spirit's presence produces great power. When you receive the Holy Spirit, we might say, Now great power comes on you because it's the power of God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead in Ephesians 1, we read in verses 19 and 20, is alive in us because of our faith in Jesus. The same power that resurrected Christ from the grave is in us because the Spirit of God dwells in us. In John chapter 16, John records this from Jesus' conversation with his disciples. That Jesus said, and when he comes, he's speaking of the helper. If you go back to John chapter 16, verse 7, you see that. The word helper, that's the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit comes in and convicts us of, of sin and judgment and righteousness. The Holy Spirit's presence in our hearts is so important for genuine saving faith. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit becomes the the guarantee, the evidence of a genuine saving faith 
in Christ. It's important that we would believe. It's important that we would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where, again, the main, the main thrust of this message is to preach what the Bible teaches. But I do think it's important, because I, I pointed this out earlier, that there are some other uh, denominations that we would disagree about how they understand what they understand is happening here in Acts chapter 8. And I do think it's important for us to point to this truth, okay? To kind of tie a bow on this and, and, and move us to a moment of, of reflection and, and contemplation here. I think it's important that we understand that this is not the normal pattern so that we see how important it is that, the, that there's evidence of the normal pattern in our own life. I think it's important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is given to everyone who confesses faith in Christ. So that if we lack the presence of the Holy Spirit, if there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit, there's no fruit of the Spirit, there's no transforming power uh, that is convicting us of sin and judgment and righteousness in our hearts, then we must question, am I genuinely saved? I think it's important that we understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't come later in a second baptism of the Spirit, but it's given at the moment that we believe so that we can genuinely know with with certainty that we have been saved because everyone who is saved receives the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of their salvation, the down deposit, the depayment given so that, that we may know that we are his. Which really brings us to this point of reflection today. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Has there ever been a moment in your life when you have genuinely trusted in Christ by faith? You have received his Holy Spirit as that guarantee of your salvation that you know. Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? I'm not asking, did you walk an aisle, did you pray a prayer, and did you get baptized? Those are all important steps that we take, yes. But what we learn from Simon is that you can take all the right steps, you can check the boxes, but if your heart is not right, then, then you aren't saved. So my question today is, do you know, is there evidence in your heart, in your life? I can't see inside of you just like you can't see inside of me. But when the Spirit is present, there will be proof, there will be evidence, there will be knowledge. And so I want to encourage you today to listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking to you, guiding you. And if there is anyone here today who would say, I've never trusted in Jesus, like maybe I've done the things, I've checked the boxes, I've, 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 I've done all the things that you talked about, but if you've never received his Holy Spirit, then what would prevent you today from turning to him in faith, surrendering your heart to him that you might be saved? I want to ask if you would to bow your head with me and close your eyes as we prepare for this moment of invitation. And as we prepare to sing in just a moment about the saving work of Jesus and declare that to be true, that Jesus paid it all and that we owe him everything, our very lives, let's recognize that we don't owe him everything in order to earn his salvation, but rather we owe him everything as a response to what he has given freely as a gift to those who turn to him in faith. The Holy Spirit is given freely. You cannot buy, but it's given freely to those who turn to Jesus today. May you receive his Holy Spirit by faith. And so, Lord, we pray to you this morning. 
We ask that you would move in our hearts. Convict us of sin and judgment and righteousness. Holy Spirit, move within us. I pray that if there's anyone here today who has never trusted in you, that this might be the moment that they would surrender their life to you, that this might be the time when genuinely they would call on you as Savior and Lord, that they would receive your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation, that you have bound us together as a body through faith in you, Jesus, and that you give us your power in our hearts so that we may live in the fullness of life that you intended for us. Jesus, we praise you for your salvation. We look to you today. Guide us now to to know and respond to your truth. This we pray in your name.